Hey, Outcomes Rocket listeners, Saul Marquez here. I get what a phenomenal asset a podcast could be for your business, and also how frustrating it is to navigate editing and production, monetization, and achieving the ROI you're looking for. Technical busy work shouldn't stop you from getting your genius into the world, though. You should be able to build your brand easily with a professional podcast that gets attention. A patched up podcast could ruin your business. Let us do the technical busy work behind the scenes while you share your genius on the mic and take the industry stage. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket, everyone. Saul Marquez here. Today, I have the privilege of having John Gorman on the podcast. He's the founder and chairman of Nightingale Partners. John is the founder and former executive chairman of Gorman Health Group, at the time, the industry's leading consulting practice, which spun out nearly a dozen entrepreneurial ventures in government health programs. John's work focuses on Medicare, Medicaid, and Affordable Care Act strategy, governance, and turnaround of distressed health plans. Prior to founding the firm, John served as assistant to the Director of Healthcare Financing Administration and the Office of Managed Care, where he provided day-to-day management and served as the external liaison for Medicare and Medicaid managed care programs. During the 1993 debate on national health care reform, John was chief lobbyist on health care financing issues for the National Association of Community Health Centers, an organization of federally funded primary care clinics for the medically underserved. John's career in Washington began as a press secretary and staff director for U.S. Representative John Conyers, then chairman of the Government Operations Committee. John serves on the board of directors of Henry Health Systems Health Alliance Plan in his birthplace of Detroit, Michigan, and serves as a senior advisor to Premier Incorporated, the hospital purchasing cooperative on Medicare Advantage and Medicaid Matters. John, how do you do so much? You've done so much uh, and you continue <laughs> to do a lot. So I'm excited to have you here to, to, to chat Thanks, about so. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And so, man, you've done a lot. And so now you have this awesome work that you're doing at Nightingale Partners that we're going to dive into deeper here. But before we do, John, tell us a little bit more about why. What is the driving force that keeps you going in healthcare? Uh, Well, it started in my earliest days when I was growing up in Detroit. My parents met at Wayne State Med School. And, uh, you know, they both uh, had long and particularly my mother, very distinguished careers as community physicians. They, they both trained in emergency medicine, which my dad kept doing for his entire career. But my mother was, um, she's, a, she's a real unique soul. And actually, just a couple of years ago, got the humanitarian, Lifetime Humanitarian Achievement Award from the AMA. So she's wow. uh, she's a really awesome. prominent family practitioner who's really done a lot of charity medicine. And, and I like to think that the moral core of the work that I do comes from mom. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Black, congratulations yeah. to you. And, and um, she's 80 years old and still working. My gosh, that's yeah, unbelievable. Good beast. for her. Well, you know, she's <laughs> Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Another, you know, passionate soul for the work that that is much needed in healthcare. And so you've shifted. You were doing the consultant business for a while. You were in government and consultancy. But now the the work at Nightingale is fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing there? Yeah, it's a it's a real departure. 
from the rest of my career. But Nightingale Partners is one of these weird opportunity zone funds, Saul, that came out of uh, Trump's big tax giveaway bill a few years ago. But this was actually Cory Booker's program that was designed to do real estate redevelopment in disadvantaged communities. And I was sitting downstairs on my couch on my daddy-o on my ass, retired about a year and a half ago when I got a text notification over my phone that the IRS had just completely rewritten the regulations for the Opportunity Zone program. So now the over $6 trillion of available capital for investment in these disadvantaged communities could now be used for not just purchasing real estate, but more importantly for our purposes, for leasing real estate, but for working capital or to meet the business requirements of a new company in one of these roughly 8,800 opportunity zones across the country. And I sat, I remember I sat straight up and I, I slapped my forehead and I said, that's it. That's how we can use, you know, large sums of available capital to deploy to address social determinants of health, which has long been a, a passion of mine. But as an investor, Saul, it's an amazing space to be in because whenever you invest in things like food security or housing security or to provide transportation to folks who are challenged to get to doctor's appointments or to a an urgent care instead of to the ER, they have reliably shown a three to eight X return on investment in terms of what you save in healthcare costs that were yeah. avoidable later. And when you consider that 60 to 80% of all the healthcare expenditures in this country are attributable to the social determinants of health. And especially we're at the high end of that figure now in the middle of this pandemic. Then, you know, as an investor, this is a very, very ripe area. Uh, we remain the only opportunity zone fund that's dedicated to healthcare and, and certainly specifically to social determinants. And, you know, our whole reason for being, and we're purpose built to de-risk these types of investments for uh, large insurers, for uh, health systems. And we're doing a lot of work with state and local government right now as well. Wow. Well, you know, you mentioned some some critical stats there. You know, I mean, four to eight dollars per every dollar invested is no joke, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's the economic portion. Yeah. How about the healthcare benefits, right? Like, well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In terms of quality improvement, in terms of re reducing disparities in care, which is a, a very big priority for us. I mean, health equity is what we're, we're all about. And health equity means that you run down to the ground and kill disparities in care, whether that's you know the fact that African-Americans are dying at four times the rate of COVID as their white counterparts, or that Black women are dying in childbirth at four to six times the rate of white people. Just, you know, we're seeing it playing out every day now, Saul, in just how the vaccine rollout's going and how inequitably this has been done as well. So, you know, these kind of disparities and inequities in our healthcare system are features. They're built into our health system from the way that it originated. And we've just always found that the best way to both improve quality, bring about greater health equity by eliminating disparities. And to bend the cost curve is to really deal directly with social determinants, which I like to say, Saul, are basically social determinants of health are four fancy words for poverty. And poverty is the root of 60 to 80% of what we spend on healthcare in this country. And if we deal with it directly, you have these incredible effects that you get from it. 
And as an investor, that's very ripe soil for us to plant in. Totally. And so the beginning of, of our discussion, John, you mentioned that there was a bill and there was, I think you said $4 trillion. And $6.2 trillion in available capital was made possible through the launch of the Opportunity Zone program. It's basically a giant tax shelter. And it basically says that if you invest money in one of these 8,800 Opportunity Zones around the country, saw, and you leave that money in there for at least 10 years, then not only is the initial investment tax-free, but then all of the proceeds that you made on that investment are completely tax-free. Hmm. So that makes for it suits for our purposes extremely well because these are now long-term puts right. um, and long-term investments into these interventions that we like to design, finance, and then help execute on the ground. That's fascinating, John. Thanks for clarifying there. And, sure. and so talk to us about maybe some of the initiatives or companies that you're working with through this opportunity. Sure. We, uh, we've got about 41 projects right now that are either underway or in development. We're actually right in the middle now. And the reason I'm dressed the way that I am, you can't see that. But <laughs> we are crashing on the vaccine distribution plan for one of the New York City boroughs, uh, mm. which, as you can imagine, is a massive undertaking. You know, that's a bit of a departure for us, though. Our more traditional work is in just direct investment into social determinant interventions like food security. We're doing uh, all kinds of food assistance programs as well as uh, medically tailored meals for diabetics. Our interest in that area is really driven off of the landmark uh, study that Geisinger uh, Health Plan did in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago saw where they found they were spending about $300,000 per patient per year on their uncontrolled elderly diabetics. So they started a diabetically appropriate meal program for them, for their seniors. And within 14 months, they had that average cost down to $48,000 per patient per year. So net of the cost of the meals prepared, delivered, they saved almost $200,000 per patient per year. So that worked out to a 35X ROI. Um, so that that's our kind of our North Star on food security programs and medically appropriate meals for diabetics. In housing, we've got a number of initiatives going on where we're particularly focused on housing insecure seniors, uh, so especially dual eligibles. So these are seniors and the disabled who qualify for both Medicare and Medicaid and are the most vulnerable patients in the entire healthcare system. So we've got a couple of projects working down in Alabama. The state there has submitted an incredible waiver to CMS for Medicaid to house about 7,500 of their disabled Medicaid beneficiaries and to basically move them out of institutional settings and to get them into you know, single and multifamily homes with on-site support. So we're, we're working with a couple of uh, real estate developers to respond to that waiver uh, once uh, the new CMS administrator turns to it. You know, another great one we're working on is down in Puerto Rico, where the entire island is one giant opportunity zone, Saul. And there we're doing a joint oh, venture with, uh, yeah, the basically the entire island is one giant opportunity zone. And um, we are working with the largest insurer down there and with the largest youth, youth development organization on the island. And we're going into 
over a dozen of Puerto Rico's worst and most vulnerable public housing projects. And uh, our partner is going to open up a charter school and a workforce training center so that we can get to lifting up the economic health of these communities. And we're going to open up within those developments a large clinical and social services clinic that will especially represent, you know, some very desperately needed specialties in mental and behavioral health and uh, pediatric health as well, as you, as you can imagine, in a public housing project. So we're going to do 13 of those developments across the island in some of the, you know, the most needed communities uh, in Puerto Rico. So that it gives you a little idea of uh, some of the stuff that we're working on. But, you know, we've got other projects we're getting into, you know, medication-assisted opioid treatment. We're doing transportation assisted benefits in in a lot of these markets. But what you see as a common thread in almost all of them, Saul, is the deployment of community health workers. You know, these are basically social workers without the license who grew up in the neighborhoods that they're working in and uh, help to coordinate the care of complex low-income patients. And the second, you know, is something that we really came into last year which is access to broadband, which is, you know, a new social determinant of health, especially in the middle of a pandemic. We've got to be able to give people access to the internet and enough data to be able to get reliable information, you know, to be able to get their vaccines and the like. So those are some of the common threads of of a lot of the investments we're making. Yeah, super, super fascinating, John. And, you know, what's your perspective on this? I mean, it seems to me that there has been a huge shift in the government's willingness to run programs like this and payers willing to to make investments in food and, and housing. I mean, you've been in this game for a while. So, so yeah. tell me if you feel that shift is true. And then if it is, why? Well, we came about, Saul, because of my frustration with seeing how the industry had the authority to offer these types of benefits and services years ago. And most of them weren't really pursuing it meaningfully because for a plan to spend its own money on these large-scale types of interventions, so this stuff's expensive. I mean, you can, you can spend 50 million bucks on a, mm-hmm. on a relatively small patient population pretty easily. And what we found was that one of the real barriers to offering these types of benefits and services was that if the plan has to use its own money, especially in Medicare Advantage plans, then there's going to have to be impact to premium. And Medicare Advantage lives or dies on a zero premium product. So, you know, we found that plans were making decisions between, you know, do we house these 5,000 homeless people or are we able to maintain a zero premium product? And they always chose the zero premium product. So our thought was that if we were able to bring third-party capital to the dance and then expertise in the design of these types of interventions and in their operation and execution so that we could actually turnkey this for a payer or for a large health system or for a state or local government, that that would really drop a lot of the barriers to rapid adoption of these types of benefits and services. I mean, the industry is undergoing an arms race right now in social determinants. I mean, practically everywhere you look, you know, just today we saw that United just invested millions in a housing, the large housing project right in your backyard in Chicago uh, this morning, Saul. So, oh, is that right? The, I missed that. Yeah, there's huge activity going on. But for a lot of the plans, when you get in into the standpoint of benefit design, most of them are not doing stuff that's particularly meaningful. 
you know, they're offering things like acupuncture or therapeutic massage or gym memberships. And very few of those types of benefits are relevant to low income beneficiaries. You know, if they're in Medicaid, most of them are holding down two or three or more jobs. If they're Medicare beneficiaries and they're low income, they're trying to figure out where their next meal is coming from. So we are really here to try to make these types of benefits and services more readily available with third-party financing and actual expertise in how to get this done. Because the, the most frequent question we were hearing from the plans when we were doing our exploratory work was, how do we even get started? Yeah. So that's why we're here. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess, yes, it's happening. And at the same time, not by itself with the plans, it's requiring this this additional third-party capital to drive the results and make it a little more turnkey for the plans to, to yeah. be able to drive some of this. So so then yeah. I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around how do you execute, right? So let's just say that example of $50 million needed for X amount of lives to provide yeah. food and housing. How does that, you know, how do you transact that with the plan? Our business model is really based around a shared savings model, Saul. So when we um, gotcha. lay out these interventions with the plan, we know from the analytics work that we've done at the front end of this entire process, we always lead with data. And the data tells us who and where uh, our interventions are going to be most meaningful and where they're going to have the greatest impact, both in quality improvement and in reduced cost. And then we basically set a baseline with the plan on those members for what they were spending on those folks when we got started. And then totally. we start measuring it annually thereafter. And we, we only start sharing savings in about typically in year three in Is our investments. Right? We go, yeah, because we want to give these things a chance to, to get established and to start showing some results. And then we start accruing those savings so that we can repay our investors at the end of that 10-year period. And then we shovel the rest back into continually expanding the reach of the programs that we've invested in to serve more people year over year. So that's our business model. And in effect, what we're doing is we're providing this bridge capital to the plans for these large-scale interventions. And then we're monetizing the savings that result from those interventions so that we can repay our investors at the back end of it. Um, now, in, in terms of the experience in, in the design, you know, my dear partner, Pam Taylor, uh, is our chief innovation officer. And we've built basically everything around Pam. She is a double PhD who used to run the whole community connections program at WellCare. So she ran the whole social determinants program for uh, one of the largest Medicaid plans in the country. And we have a whole team of folks underneath her that do not just the analytics work, but then the, the intervention design. And then we have a whole stable of people that we go to for intervention implementation and execution. Usually the form that that takes the shape of, Saul, is that we will establish a joint venture with our, our clients. So say it's XYZ Health Plan in Chicago. We will set up that new co joint venture in one of the Chicago Opportunity Zones. And then that's where all the money flows through. And the statute says that as long as 70% of the assets of NUCO reside in that Opportunity Zone, then we can serve patients that even live outside of that OZ. And then that, that NUCO, that joint venture, is then the entity that then goes out and engages local community-based organizations. So say we want to engage Meals on Wheels, and then we've got a half dozen other groups of, you know, 10 nice church ladies in a basement somewhere that are capable of, pre of preparing 
500 meals for delivery the next day. We don't want to reinvent the wheel with what we're doing, Saul. We want to be able to help leverage existing community assets that are known and trusted. Uh, We want to help them scale and grow. So there's a big incubator function to all of our investments. And then we will have our people on the ground there actually coordinating the delivery of all these services, basically in a value-based payment context, because we've got to be able to show the results of these interventions, not just to the planned client, but to the Republican billionaire investors in our syndicate who are standing behind me, tapping their foot saying, all right, John, show me, show me the results we're getting for the money that we just invested. So totally. we're very data-driven in all of this. But at the end of the day, Saul, it all, it, it all matters in execution on the ground in these opportunity zones. And we've found that the best path to that is, is of course, leveraging existing assets. But where they don't exist, we'll fund new ones and launch new ones. Like if those uh, food security vendors aren't uh, available in the local market, We're funding the development of several commercial kitchens and the staff and a fleet of vehicles to be able to do deliveries. So when we say turnkey, that's what we mean. Now, very often that all this activity should be coordinated with the care management teams back at the health plan. And we do a lot of that uh, work as well. That's a critical coordination that we have with the client on all of this kind of work. So it's complicated, but at the end of the day, it's what happens on the ground and your ability to measure the results that we're getting that's important. Yeah, that's critical for sure, John. And yeah. hey, it brought you out of retirement. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm 52, man. And, you know, my my wife was looking at me laying there, laying my ass on the couch with the dog and saying, dude, you got to find something else to do. So go do something. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, you know, it's yeah. great. Definitely appreciate you sharing how you guys do it and, you know, the impact that you're making. Do you believe that the work that you're starting to do or have been doing here with uh, Nightingale, do you think that it's starting to de-risk some of these investments for the payers? I mean, oh, absolutely. just look at what, what United did, right? I mean, do you yep. feel like they're starting to see and they're saying, hey, oh, they're, yeah. It? I mean, look, companies like United don't invest hundreds of millions of dollars and, and they have. Kaiser has $400 million last year in this kind of stuff. That's real money. What we were frustrated by was seeing plans doing little bitty, you know, just stick a toe in the water with these types of benefits and services. And frankly, most of that stuff just amounted to PR stunts or, you know, the types of services that were designed to attract and retain worried well members, but not necessarily the highest risk members that, uh, that were in greatest need of intervention and coordination from their plan. So by bringing in external third-party capital and to you know where we need to the expertise in putting these programs together and actually launching and running we found that this is enormously helpful especially to the middle market plans saw you know companies like united they don't need our money yeah. and they have these massive enterprise staffs that direct these types of interventions you know from within their own corporate offices Our target market is much more the middle market of Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, local and regional powerhouses that don't necessarily have the personnel. They certainly don't have the capital, and many of them don't have the expertise to be able to do this kind of stuff in a meaningful way. We're here to help them do this stuff boldly, you know, to go big and to be able to uh, have some assurance that their partner in doing this stuff knows what the hell they're doing. Yeah. I think it's fantastic that you have decided to be part of this and and that you're doing it in a big way. 
you've been doing it close to two years now. And, and so yeah. wh- what have you seen that you could say, hey, you know what, we're improving outcomes this way, or this is, you know, a business innovation this way. Can you touch on that? Sure. I mean, a lot of our projects are still too nascent to uh, be getting results yet that are that are statistically meaningful. We know we're going to get there, Saul, because the research is absolutely conclusive that this stuff yields results. And, you know, frankly, the biggest challenge that we've always had in getting these projects approved is not getting it the high sign from a chief medical officer or from a CEO at a health plan. It's really getting the chief actuary to agree that, yeah, this stuff is going to actually result in what we say it will, and that we can actually take this to the bank, literally and in benefit design as we move forward. We are seeing in some of these projects, like we made a, a big investment last year in a chain of PACE sites. That's the program of all inclusive care for the elderly. It's basically adult daycare centers on steroids for frail seniors as an alternative to nursing homes. Hmm. And our portfolio company, Edenbridge Health, it's called, is really focused on underserved communities and introducing the PACE model to really minority and really vulnerable communities for the adult daycare center model. So Thus far, they have uh, won bids in Los Angeles, in Northern Virginia, and starting to get underway in both markets. And we are bidding here in D.C., over in Southeast D.C., which is our most vulnerable community, where they would be going in there as well. And they have entered already a couple of large senior public housing projects with adult daycare centers, which, you know, we just think the time is now for this model in the middle of a pandemic where congregate care facilities like nursing homes have just become death factories. Um, I think having adult daycare centers that can extend their reach into home and community settings is really a model that's called for. So that's an early one that we invested in that we're, you know, we're just starting to put bricks and mortar into the ground and, and, and to get those teams spun up. The same goes with um, the initiative in Puerto Rico and the public housing project. We're getting ready to break ground on the first one at the, uh, the Ramos-Antonini public housing project in downtown San Juan. So still a little early for us, but uh, you know we're heartened by just the reams and reams of research out there that shows that this stuff is meaningful. No, that's fantastic, John. Thank you for that. And so it's difficult to get something like this off the ground. It's unique, right? And you said yeah, you, at this point, is. you're the only one doing it. Yeah. So talk to us about some of the challenges and maybe highlight one or two that you've learned a lot from. Well, um, there's a whole host of challenges in being first to market with something like we're doing at Nightingale. You know, the first hurdle is always, of course, just purely educative and, and just helping people understand how the Opportunity Zone program works, how we basically hacked a, a Republican billionaire real estate tax shelter to try to improve healthcare for black and brown people. And that takes a little bit of doing. I mean, generally, when you're, you're bringing a brand new innovation or concept to a market, it's going to take people four or five times of hearing it before they really get it. And then that's when you see the light bulbs go off. So, you know, just getting over those hurdles really extended our business cycle in our first year of operation. And then the freaking pandemic hit. So, you know, we, these were usually three to five month discussions to yes, and let's let's get some paper signed and get moving. When the pandemic hit, it extended our business cycle to about eight to nine months. 
So that, that certainly was frustrating, but you know, everybody had to get focused on the plague that was out there and, and what we needed to get over it. And then what we're finding is that with a lot of those clients with whom we initiated those discussions pre-pandemic, we're now getting pulled into their, their pandemic planning. And, you know, we're like the vaccine distribution project we're working on up in New York City and, uh, you know, some other measures that will help uh, with vaccination. So like some of the transportation projects that we're doing, being able to get people to a vaccination site twice within 21 days, that's a very important feature of some of these programs that we're doing. So those were, were two. I would say in my overall career, though, Saul, and like I said, I'm 52, but I like to think I've got the scars on my ass of a man twice my age. Um, <laughs> I, I think the, the biggest one that I learned as a CEO of many companies at this point is that I am fundamentally a very trusting person. And I've had that trust abused uh, on many occasions. And I always have to remember that if you're going to be a trusting soul, and I think it's important to be, then remember four very important words inspect what you expect and to you know always kind of circle back and and verify with the folks who trust you you put yourself in to actually verify what it is that's going on and to continually manage that's actually real management and i, I don't know if that was trust and just laziness or just having a a light touch on my management teams over the years, but I, I learned a lot from some of those scars from that. Yeah, that's a really great message, John. And, you know, ultimately you do have to inspect what you expect well said or trust, but verify as uh, yeah. Well, as, I'm as never we... one to quote Reagan if you know my politics, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, listen, I, this has been great. And folks, if uh, our conversation inspired some curiosity, I'm glad because it definitely is is interesting work that John and his team are up to. Yeah. The website is nightingalepartners.org. Check them out. We'll also leave that link uh, as well as best ways to get in touch with John on our website. Go to outcomesrocket.health. Type in Nightingale Partners. You'll see our entire show, transcript, show notes, links. Everything's going to be there. John, what is the best way for people to get in touch if they want to learn more? And uh, what should we walk away from this podcast thinking about? Sure. Well, you can reach me at john.gorman, G-O-R-M-A-N, at nightingalepartners.org. The website is terrific and really includes a whole library on all the social determinants research that we found uh, most compelling over the years that, that drives a lot of our interventions. You can follow me on uh, LinkedIn. I uh, post a lot there. And I'm on uh, Twitter is my guilty habit, uh, guilty pleasure sort of torture. <laughs> and I'm at uh, John Gorman 18 on Twitter. But um, LinkedIn is really where I, I like to do a lot of my professional, you know, bloviating if you will. But what I would leave you with, Saul, and you know, first, thank you so much for having me on. It's really been a pleasure, is that everybody should just please remember that the vast majority of what we spend on healthcare in this country is directly attributable to poverty. And to impact poverty and its effects in healthcare costs, you got to go big. You can't just be doing this stuff on small scales, you know, with a couple of dozen patients here or there. It's just not going to be all that meaningful to quality improvement and to bending the cost curve that, um, you know, we're here to help folks go big on anti-poverty initiatives that are directly meaningful to quality improvement 
and reducing the cost of care in these vulnerable populations. Well, in this conversation today, John, you, you've certainly showed us several ways of how you're doing that. And I'm interested in visiting with you again, maybe in six months to a year to hear sure, some of the progress that. and uh, just, yeah, stay in touch on some of the difference that you're making. Yeah, well, certainly appreciate that opportunity, Saul. Thanks. It's really been a pleasure. Hey, everyone. Saul Marquez here. Have you launched your podcast already and discovered what a pain it could be to keep up with editing, production, show notes, transcripts, and operations? What if you could turn over the keys to your podcast busy work while you do the fun stuff like expanding your network and taking the industry stage. Let us edit your first episode for free so you can experience the freedom. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more.